As most of you know, this week marks the ninth anniversary of 9-11. And just hearing, you know, things about it on the news, I reread an account of the final minutes in the life of a gentleman named Todd Beamer. Todd Beamer was one of the passengers aboard Flight 93 that ended up going into being driven into the ground in a field in Shanksville, uh, Pennsylvania. And Beamer was, with the rest of the passengers, herded to the back of the plane. And we know about his last few minutes because he was on a phone call with a woman named Lisa Jefferson, who was an emergency supervisor. So he's in the back of the plane. He gets on his phone with Lisa Jefferson. And the account goes like this from uh, a Newsweek account, which really is from Lisa's perspective. Up to this moment, Beamer had been all business. Lisa, he said suddenly. Yes. Well, that's, that's my wife's name, said Beamer. Well, that's my name too, Todd, said Jefferson. Oh, my God, said Beamer. I don't think we're going to get out of this thing. I'm going to have to go out on faith. And Jefferson tried to comfort him. Todd, she said, you don't know that. Beamer asked her to promise to call his wife if he didn't make it home. He told her about his little boys and the new baby on the way. Then he said to the passengers that the passengers were going to try to jump the hijackers. Are you sure that's what you want to do, Todd, asked Jefferson. It's what we have to do, he said. He asked her to pray with him. Beamer kept the Lord's Prayer bookmark in his Tom Clancy novel, but he didn't need any prompting. He began to recite the ancient litany, and Lisa joined him. When they finished reciting the 23rd Psalm, Beamer said, Jesus, help me. Then Lisa Jefferson heard him say, Are you guys ready? Let's roll. Lisa Beamer, wife of Todd Beamer, a year later wrote a book by that title, Let's Roll, about the faith of her husband and her own faith. And you might imagine how difficult it would be to stand at a crater in a field in Pennsylvania and stand at the edge of this crater knowing what happened to your husband, what might you think at that moment she recorded this in her book god knew the terrible choices the terrorist would make and that todd would die as a result god knew my children would be left without a father and me without a husband yet in his sovereignty and in his perspective on the big picture he knew it was better to allow the events to unfold as they did rather than to redirect todd's plan to avoid to avoid death I can see all the reasons he might have allowed this when I know he could have I can't see all the reasons he might have allowed this when I know he could have stopped it. I don't like how his plan looks from my perspective right now. But knowing that he loves me and can see the world from start to finish helps me say it's okay. If we believe wholeheartedly each moment that our destiny rests in the hands of Jesus Christ 
the one with ultimate love and ultimate power, what do we have to be concerned about? Of course, our humanity clouds this truth many times, but hanging on to glimpses of it keeps everything in perspective. And so I thought, what do you hold on to during turbulent times? What little glimpses do you need when you stand at the crater in your own life and you just say, this doesn't make sense from my perspective. I don't like it. I don't want this. I don't see a good reason for this. But yet you're, you're stuck in that particular situation. What, what is it that you hold on to? What anchors your soul at that particular moment? And really what the Apostle Paul has been doing in Romans 8, specifically when we turn to Romans 8, verse 18 to the end of this chapter. He's trying to, to drop these anchors. He's trying to give you an anchor. He knows that if you're going to be a, a child of the King, he says in verse 17, if you're going to call Jesus your Savior, if you're going to be a co-heir with Jesus, you're going to share in that glory, the way to that glory, he says clearly, is through suffering. And so this early church who is about ready to suffer, who is suffering, he's helping this early church drop these anchors so when they stand at these craters in their life, they, they have some glimpse, they have something to hold on to. And specifically, in these last few verses, 31 to 39, uh, God, Paul, it's like he, he's getting to this crescendo, the music's building, and he just explodes out on these absolute certainties of God in these few verses. And these, I want to look at this passage as two anchors for your soul, these two massive anchors that God intends you to drop down when you have to stand at that particular place in your own life. And the first anchor, verse 31 through 34, is justification. And the second anchor, verse 35 to the end, is no separation. So the first anchor, justification. Second anchor, no separation. So when you're out and you're in the life of your little boat and it starts shaking and moving around, he intends you to drop off these two massive anchors, and I want to take a look at those this morning. First massive anchor, justification. Just notice as you look through these first few verses here, 31 through 34, the, the kind of language that Paul finds himself using. Who can be against us, this legal or judicial language? Who can bring a charge against us, justifies, condemns, intercedes. All, all this language in these few, few verses is meant to, to set a scene, to set a, a courtroom scene for us. And Paul, like this trial lawyer, is ripping through these questions. Who can do this? Who can do that? And it's intended to hammer home this particular truth that those who are in Christ have a, a new position. We, we stand before God and we're justified. We stand before the God who knows the secrets of all men's heart. And we stand before Him and He looks at us and we can say, not guilty. 
Try, try just for a moment to wrap your mind around verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect or God's people? Imagine for a moment you, you come up to the judgment seat and you're standing there before God Almighty and He has this person beside Him who, who calls out across eternity and, and He says, Paul Phillips has arrived. Is there anyone that Paul Phillips has ever come across? And not, not just any person. Is there any word that he has spoken? Is there any thought that would want to come forth? Is there anyone, is there anything that could bring just one charge against this man? And the call goes out and I'm standing there or you're standing there. Is there any person? Is there any thought? Is there any word that can condemn this man? And what happens? Total silence. It's the sweetest silence I have ever heard. And maybe the person who's calling out goes, <clears throat> Maybe you didn't hear me, creation. It's Paul Phillips who's here. I know there are plenty of charges against this man. Come forth words. Come forth thoughts. Come forth people. And, and nobody comes forth. It's, it's complete silence. And so the Lord God Almighty looks down and says, not guilty. Why is that possible? How could it even happen and it would be like looking right through this table. That, that the blood of Christ, it's on me. It's, and when he looks at me, he sees his son. He doesn't see what I've done. He has, doesn't see my words. He doesn't see my thoughts. He sees the, the righteousness of Christ. That's what we call in theological terms justification. That we've been justified before Christ. Let me give you just a, a definition and then a picture of how that might look. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made Christ who never sinned to be the sin offering for our sin so that we could be made right with, with God. God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for my sin, for your sin, so that we could may, be made right with with God. Sometimes a, a little way to remember this, although it's just maybe half of the equation, it's justified. It's just if I'd never sinned. But th that's just part of the equation. I really want you to understand how huge this idea of justification is. Because if God were looking at me and he said, well, it's just as if you'd never sinned, I would be like, praise the Lord. I mean, if that's what I get, I'm, I'm all in for that. But that's not it. It's not that he just looks at me and says, your sins are removed. That'd be great enough. But it's even better than that. When, when I walk in, people are cheering me. They're glorifying me. 
It's not that they're just seeing that Paul doesn't have any sins. They're seeing something about Paul that's worth cheering for. And what is that? It's the righteousness of Christ. It's stunning. It's stunning all by itself that he just wouldn't see my sin. But what's added to it is creation is going, wow, look who this is. It's Paul Phillips, everyone. Come and look. It's unbelievable. And what's one of the greatest pictures of that in the stories of the New Testament? The prodigal son. He comes home and he he doesn't just sort of get cleaned up and say, well, we're just going to forget about what he did. What happens? He gets a robe, he gets sandals, he gets a ring. And the father turns around to everyone and says, look who's back. Let's throw a big party. That's what's going to happen. I would be happy just to sneak in the door. Just get in. Nobody noticed that I'm there. Go, wow, what's he doing here? But that's not what happens. It's It's unbelievable. It's the greatest news. It's the gospel. It's not just that it's like I haven't sinned. The righteousness of Christ is added to my life. And so when Paul goes through, earlier we talked about last week, we end up being glorified because of the righteousness of Christ. An Old Testament picture of Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is speaking to his people And turn back with me in your Bibles to that point. And Zechariah has these different visions, very powerful visions. And this is how you might see this justification as it runs out even through the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me, this is Zechariah, he showed me Joshua, who is the high priest. And Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord, which is... Most of the time in the New Testament, a a picture of Christ. And Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. You get that picture? Joshua, the high priest, is standing up and Satan's coming right in going, Okay, I know this guy, ready to accuse. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? You see that? This brand, this person, he's plucked out of the fire by God's grace. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And an angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's, that's the picture And of course, we know it's just a shadow of a reality to come. Verse 8, Now hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, reference to Christ. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave this inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. When did that day happen? At the cross. So that's the picture that we have. You have Joshua coming up, the high priest. And if you're thinking, okay, Joshua, the high priest, he's probably going to get in. He's a pretty good guy. Oops, he's not going to get in. It's not looking good for Joshua. It's not looking good for me. 
Because Joshua, when the Lord looks at him, he looks like he has these filthy rags on. He says, I'm going to take that off and I'm going to give you a new robe. That's justification. So, so when you're living your life and you're looking internally and you're looking and you're seeing your sin and you're saying to yourself, how could God love me? I mean, if he knew what I did... All the stuff that you won't tell anybody else. All the stuff that you would be embarrassed that anybody would know. All the stuff that if you came into the church and you actually told somebody, you'd feel like the church would, would push you back out the door and say, well, it's not really for your kind. I have that stuff. You have that stuff. And you begin to question, you say, God, could you be for me? Could you really love me? I mean, you, you know all these things. Is it possible? And your faith begins to wobble around and gets tossed around in a storm of your own sin. Paul is saying, drop this anchor. It's a massive anchor. You're justified. You're justified not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. And so when you start looking at yourself and you think, I look terrible. Yeah, you do. Answer, yes. But God said, I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at Christ. Christ on you. And therefore, you can drop that anchor down. And that anchor can anchor your soul in very difficult times. And so we know now because of that justification, verse 31, God is for us. Some of you need to do some scripture memory and just start right here. God is for you. I mean, if you're a Christian, He's for you. He's not against you. Whatever difficulty may be happening in your life, it's not, it's not God against you. God is for you. Listen to how John Piper says it. God is entirely for us. He never, he's never against us. None of our sicknesses is a judgment from the condemning judge. None of our broken cars or failed appliances is a punishment from God. None of our marital strife is a sign of His wrath. None of our lost jobs is a penalty for sin. None of our wayward children is a crack of the whip of God's retribution. If we are in Christ, God is for us, not against us. And so when you look at yourself and you say what Paul says in Romans 7, oh, what a wretched man or woman that I am. Who can save me? The answer is Jesus Christ. He has justified me. And he is for me. Probably the most powerful illustration I've heard was from a gentleman named Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning's written a number of books. The Ragamuffin Gospel may be the one he's best known for. It's a very powerful story. His name was Richard Manning, and he befriended a guy named Ray Brennan while he was in the Marines, and they served in Korea together. And Brennan would tell the story that in 1951, a little after midnight, he and his friend Ray Brennan were sharing a cigarette and sharing a foxhole together when a grenade landed in their foxhole. Ray Brennan flicked the cigarette aside and 
landed on the grenade. Uh, the grenade detonated, and Ray Brennan's stomach absorbed this explosion. And the last thing he did was wink at his friend, Richard Manning, and he rolled over and he was dead. Several years later, Richard Manning entered the priesthood, and as a part of this becoming this new person in Christ as a priest, he took his vows, Richard did, and he took on a new name, Brennan, after his buddy. So now he's named Brennan Manning. And Brennan Manning came to Ray Brennan's mother, who was an old Irish lady, and they're talking and sharing a meal several years later, and Brennan Manning says at the end of the meal, do you really think Ray loved me? And the mother said, oh, Brennan, you must be joking of, of course he loved you. And Brandon Manning said, no, no, do, do you think he really loved me? And the mom in this very powerful voice says, what more could he have done for you? Of course that he loved you. What more could he have done? And you see what happens is we forget the same thing. You come here and you say, I'm not really sure if God is for me. I mean, I, I've forgotten. How do I, how do I know that He's really for me? It doesn't look like it's for, He's for me sometimes. And you think, how could you possibly think that? But then you realize, yeah, that happens to me. And so you come. And you come on a day like today and you say, well, what more could have He done? He who gave his own son. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, see, what more could God do? And you and I forget. So he knows it. He knows that we're going to forget. And he says, come, come and you remember what I've done for you. The big, the first big, massive anchor is justification. And that helps when you get out into your life and you just feel like, I, 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 just look at me. I'm not sure God could really love me. And you drop down that anchor. And the second anchor is the anchor of no separation. This, this is when you see the other things in the world that are taking place. One is an internal look. The second is an external look. And I look around in the world and it looks like these external forces are going to separate me from God's love. You, you can think of the early Christians who again in the Roman church fell underneath the persecution of uh, Nero. And he would take a Christian and tie the Christian to a stake that later was going to be lifted up. And around the Christian man or woman he'd put oily rags and then he would light the rags at night so the Christian could be a lantern for his parties out in the garden at night. You see, when that's happening, you can imagine saying, does God really love me? 
Is he, is he for me at this particular moment? I mean, it looks like he's against me. And Paul wants to drop this anchor down for this early church and for us as well, saying, you know, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And, and in these verses, it's this uh, sort of frantic Paul, in these verses in 35 through 39, he's, he's bringing everything possible out on stage that can feel like it's against you. If you go to a ballet, the end of the ballet, there's usually a coda. And that's every, everybody who's been dancing, they all get on the stage and the music is heightened. And Paul's just bringing everything out on stage that could possibly separate you from God. And listen to what he says. No tribulation can separate you from God. No distress, no persecution, no famine, no nakedness, no danger, no sword. None of these things can possibly separate you from God. Of these words, I've zeroed in on this one word, distress, because it means narrowness. It's the feeling that you're hemmed in on every side. You're in a situation and you look around and you just say, there's no way out. I can't get out of this situation. I'm, I'm stuck here. I'm stuck in this relationship. I'm stuck with this handicap. I'm stuck in this job. I'm, I'm stuck with this family. And, and you may say, has God, has God forgotten about me? No, no separation, Paul says. And he knows it. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he, he goes through all of these things that he's personally experienced. And how does Paul die? By the sword. And he's telling his people, I've been in that place and I want you to know there's no separation. And then he brings out the pairs on stage, as you will. Verse 38, life or death, whether it's life or death, nothing can separate you from God. Whether it's angels or rulers, anything in the spiritual realm, nothing can separate you from God. Whether it's height or depth, anything in heaven or hell, there's nothing can separate you from God. In fact, Paul just tries to say, in case I've missed anything, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. So whether you're feeling condemned from your own sins or whether you're feeling like the situations that you find yourself in and you think, maybe God's not for me. He wants you to drop off these massive anchors and He wants you to hear me say for you today, He's for you. He loves you. Nothing is going to separate you from the love of God Almighty. Nothing internally, nothing externally. Amen. Nothing in all of creation. And my question is, if you got on a ship, and on this ship were these two massive anchors, what would you assume the ship was built for? Heavy seas. And my guess is some of you are in those heavy seas. And what you needed to hear today, you need to drop one of these anchors. Maybe you need to drop both of them. God is for you. But it's possible 
that perhaps some of us are like the big battleship, the USS North Carolina, and we spend our life navigating the intercoastal waterway. We, we just creep along the shore hoping that, hey, no storm comes in. You've got these two massive realities. Why do, you, why do you have them? Why is Paul trying to make you so certain? Because he wants you out in the world where it's stormy, where you get confused on whether you're a Christian or not, where, where you get hurt and damaged and blindsided by questions and relationships and people. That's where you were meant to set sail. And for some of us, we need to set sail. We, we, we shine up our anchors. We tell people about our anchors. We make sure our anchors are ready, but we never use them. We never put ourselves out on the line. We're never out into the world. We're never being the one bright spot in a terribly black place. We're just creeping along life's shore, hoping that we can just sort of get there at the end and say, I made it. I never had to drop anchor. God's going to say, you wasted it. I gave you the anchors so you could drop the anchor. And if in the middle of the storm you mess it all up, guess what? No condemnation. If I get out there and I'm talking to Alec and I go, man, I messed that up. No condemnation. Why? God's in control. If I get out there and I just get wiped out, guess what? Even in death, no separation. That's why we have these massive realities. So some of us here today need to say this same prayer with Todd Beamer. Jesus, help me. And let's roll. Let's pray together. Lord, this, these, these verses were meant for a very challenged Christian believer in Rome. Paul had someone in mind who would be tied to a stake and wrapped with an oily rag. Thrown into a gladiator's or lion's den. That's the the situation that he lived in. And, And many were so thankful dropped these anchors to keep the Christian church moving forward into this day. So, Lord, I pray for your people. I pray specifically for those who find themselves in heavy seas. They would drop the anchor of justification. They would drop the anchor of no separation. And, Lord, for those who are here who are just creeping along life's shores, hoping never to really be tested, hoping to avoid all difficulty, may... They hear you. Come, follow me. Follow me where? Follow me out into the world. Follow me to the cross through suffering. And Lord, I pray for these elements as we share them together. For those who have forgotten. Who wonder if you really love them. They would remember what you have done for them. In Jesus' name, amen.